Well, good morning. Welcome to West Meadows, those who join us on site. And I'm going to especially mention the balcony people today. Welcome, balcony people. Thanks for being here. Hey, there's some waves. Yes. Sometimes we don't recognize you guys up there, but we're glad that you're here on the balcony too. And those joining us online as well. Well, whether you're an online person, a main floor person, a balcony person, you know, each of those groups have unique traits to them. And I'm, I'm not going to unpack and, and psychoanalyze each of those traits right now. But, but it's true. In, in each of our relationships and the way that we interact with one another, uh, in terms of who we are and, and where we go and how we behave, there are certain ways that we want to be known. If you think about that for a second, you'll know it to be true, that we have these ideal concepts of the, the right way to be in certain situations and in certain, excuse me, contexts. Now, it's going to slightly vary from person to person, but lots of research has been done into this. Uh, you know, personnel psychologists have done lots of research into this, and they found that there are certain traits that tend to float to the top within certain types of relationships. You'll see what I mean here in a second. So if you want to be considered a good friend, for example, there's certain traits that are common to good friends. Things like, and these won't be a surprise to you, things like being trustworthy, being supportive, being a, a good listener, having similar interests with one another. Does it kind of make sense? Just common traits. It's also true in, uh, in a spouse, for example. Uh, successful marriages tend to have spouses with certain traits as well. And, and they're, they're you know, broad ones, but things like being kind to one another and being respectful. Uh, commitment, that's, that's pretty important for a lifelong marriage. Uh, being loving and having chemistry between each other. Uh, you know, considering this idea of different traits, you know, it's even been said, there's this popular saying that maybe you've heard, and if you're, if you're in the, in the uh, market for finding that special Mr. or Mrs. Wright for the day ahead, this, this will be worth the price of admission in itself. <laughs> Here's the saying. It says, be the person the person you're looking for is looking for. Think about that. Be the person the person you're looking for is looking for, and that may cause you to reflect upon certain traits, certain characteristics that you might want to press further into. But if we were to take this and apply it to part of the reason we've gathered here today, let me ask you this question. What certain traits or what certain characteristics do you think would be appropriate to characterize a follower of Jesus Christ? Another way to phrase that is, how do you, if you consider yourself here today, whether online or on site, to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, how do you want to be described? What sort of attributes? What sort of characteristics? Now, some people may quickly think, well, I'll, just, I'll jump to the Sermon on the Mount, because at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us these things called the Beatitudes, these, these attitudes that we can be about, these Beatitudes, and maybe those are things that I could be defined by, things like being merciful, uh, meek, pure in heart, and, and being peacemakers in the world. So maybe some of that resonates with you as you consider that question of, what do I want to be described as? And I hope it does, because a lot of these will align, perhaps, with our image of Jesus, and maybe a mental image of Jesus that we have. And that mental image of him may go back to maybe a picture that, that Grandma had hanging in the kitchen, or, or something you've seen online at some point. Uh, these images of Jesus that, that kind of reflect these types of traits. And quite often, these pictures will have Jesus dressed in like a white robe, it's so br like brilliantly white, like fresh from the cleaners, bleached white, brilliantly white kind of a robe. Right? Often he'll be he'll be holding a lamb in his arms and kind of kind of smiling down at it. Sometimes there'll be a picture of him holding out his hand, all to communicate these ideas of gentleness and humility 
and kindness and, and, and approachability, like invitation. And those are all true. I, if I said they weren't true, I would have the trait of being a bad pastor. <laughs> if I said those weren't true, they're all true, but there's a problem. It's only one dimension of who Jesus is. Because remember, Jesus spent like 90% of his life either in the care of or working as a carpenter. And I, and I don't want to I don't want to wreck it for you and, and give you a different vision than what you had on you know grandma's wall, but his clothes weren't white. Okay, they were probably sweat stained and dirty from hard work. His hands weren't soft. They were probably calloused and and cut and nicked from tools and wood. And and his fingernails were not manicured. They were probably dirty and split. Was he humble and kind? Absolutely. I I think we we know that that to be true. But but also, did you ever think that Jesus had to go into this time of negotiation with like customers and suppliers? That's part of being a businessman in the world. And there's this other perspective. Could you imagine trying to sell to Jesus? Nathaniel, I'll take five nails and two planks of wood, thanks. Loads up your cart. By the time you get home, bang, 12 bags of nails and a lift of wood. (laughs) Amazing. And people would look at that and be like, Jesus, how did you do that? That's amazing. Jesus, you are a shrewd businessman. And he'd say, yes, I am a shrewd businessman. How do you feel about that characteristic of being shrewd? Would you like to be described as a disciple who's shrewd? Think about that trait for a second, because when you think about the word shrewd, what comes to mind? Quite often, definitions of the word shrewd, like a person who's crafty, who's cunning, who's, who's tricky. Maybe a verse comes to mind from like Genesis 3.1, where it talks about the devil, the serpent, and says the devil was more crafty. He was, he was more shrewd, we can understand it as, as any other animal that's out there. See, this word shrewd commonly has these negative impressions with it, but, uh, but that's not actually totally accurate to how we understand the word shrewd. You see, that understanding of the word shrewd has more to do with how the word's applied, about how the word is lived out. But when the word shrewd is actually true to its definition and lived out appropriately, it can be more appropriately defined as a person who is astute, a person who is discerning. Now, who here is a follower of Christ who would like to be called discerning? We'd be good with that one. We'd be good with that one. I hope so, because that's one of the qualities that Jesus wants to see lived out in his followers. You see, according to Jesus, shrewdness is a quality that is required for his disciples to effectively honor him in the world in which we live. But this must be understood and lived out in a rhythm of balance. A rhythm of balance. As we talk about the rhythms of life in this series, I want to talk today about the rhythm of balance. How we can learn to be shrewd stewards of the God-given opportunities, responsibilities, and blessings that he's given to us. Now, this idea of being shrewd may shock some of you and it may confuse others. And so we're going to unpack that in a pretty good detail today. But you may not be surprised that this confusing trait actually finds itself in one of the most confusing parables <laughs> that Jesus ever told. And it's a parable that shows up in a long teaching that happened in the area of prayer in, in Luke 15 through 17. And some very famous parables and teachings exist within that area. And, and as Jesus is talking in this long discourse, he's, he's addressing the crowds who are very intrigued by what he has to say. 
He's, he's speaking to the Pharisees who classically kind of mummer and murder under, under their breath about what he's saying. But we get to Luke 16. If you want to turn to Luke 16, that's where we're going to be for today. If you want to use your pew Bibles on page 400, uh, sorry, 849. And in Luke 16, in the, in the course of this long discourse, Jesus turns specifically to his disciples. And he speaks to them publicly and directly. And, and what's the significance of that? Is we can know two things, therefore, about what he's about to teach. Number one, we know that this is a lesson that is appropriate, that is applicable to all followers of Jesus Christ. But we also know that this, this idea of shrewdness is not meant to be like this secret trait that we just kind of do but don't talk about. No, Jesus publicly in front of everybody else said, this is one of the effective qualities of a follower of mine. This is a lesson for all followers and it's something that is to be publicly known and something that we should embrace in how we live amongst the world. And the story we find in Luke 16 begins about a steward. A man whose job it is to manage his master's business interests and finances. Now, this isn't uncommon in the time in which Jesus is speaking. It's not even uncommon in the day in which we currently live. People who are very, very, very wealthy tend to have a trusted financial investor who looks after all of their assets and businesses, right? Mine is named Richard. No, <laughs> I'm well far away from <laughs> needing a financial advisor. But, but, but Richard does not get to use these resources as his own. They're not for advancing his own interests. A financial advisor, whatever his name may be, uses them to advance his master's interests. Now, in the story that Jesus is telling, somebody comes and brings a charge against this manager and says that he's wasting, he's, he, he's, he's squandering the master's resources. He's squandering the money. And this word squander we find here in Luke 16 is actually it just showed up a few verses earlier in the parable of the prodigal son. We find it there as well as, as we read in that story about how the prodigal son received the inheritance from his father. And then he went off in this kind of wild living, this, this crazy party week where he squanders all of his inheritance. He, he frivolously, just lavishly. Just uses it. And this word squander doesn't come up too often in Scripture. But, but the idea here is he took the inheritance and he wasted on worldly indulgences. And soon it was gone and he had nothing to show for it. Well, there's an agricultural application of this as well. The idea of a, of a person who has a bag of seed that has great value. Especially potential value. Because if the seed is properly planted in the ground, it will grow into a crop. And the crop grows into profits. And the profits can be turned around to have even greater crops and greater fields. But it starts with the seed. And, and to squander the seed would basically be just to like frivolously just throw it in the air. Just throw it around. Just wherever you feel like. With, with no intention. No systematic sowing to maximize the investment that is potentially within that resource that you have. Well, this is the charge that comes against this mastered steward, is that he's just squandering. He's, he's maybe using things for his own advantage, but he's definitely just, just squandering all these resources with very little to show for the game. So the master calls him in and says, what's going on, man? I need you to go get the books. I need you to come back and give an account of everything that you've done. And quite honestly, I have lost trust in you. You cannot be my manager any longer. So the steward wonders, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm kind of a wuss. I'm, I'm too weak to go do manual labor. I'm, I'm too proud to beg. But pretty soon, that's going to be like my only options that exist. But then he remembers an adage. 
that he heard once. And, and he thought, you know, I once heard somebody say, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And he devised a plan. And so while he was still in this position of authority, while he still had the authority to act on behalf of his master, he called in some of his master's debtors. And the first man comes in and he goes, how, how much do you owe my master? Well, 800 gallons of olive oil, which is not a small amount. That's like three years worth of wages for an average worker. 800 gallons of olive oil. Steward says to him, I have a one-time red light special today. Make it 400. Done. Calls in the next man. How much do you owe my master? A thousand bushels of wheat. It's like nine and a half years worth of wages. I'm going to give you the same deal I just gave the last guy. Make it 800. And they, they would have paused for him and think, what's the catch? But not for too long because this is too good to pass up. And the deal is done and the books are changed. Now, now the steward has to soon give an account of all of his business dealings. And this does not appear like it's going to help his case. This seems to us, perhaps, like he has gone from being wasteful to being criminal <laughs> in what he's doing. And his day of reckoning indeed does come, and he brings the books before his master, and they don't balance. Sure enough, he has squandered his master's resources. And sure enough, these latest business dealings show up on the books as well. Now, if this was your money, and Richard came to you <laughs> and showed this to you, how would you respond? I'm going to bet you would have the trait of anger. <laughs> I'm going to bet you would have this desire for justice. I want compensation, every cent paid back. But what does Jesus say? Verse 8, Jesus says, But the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, you didn't see that coming. You can't tell me that you did not see that coming. And if you are familiar with the story, you probably are confused as to why that would be the response that the master would have. Now, what the manager did here is debated amongst theologians. There's a few common ideas as to what actually was taking place as he adjusted these deals. Now, one thought is that the initial deal that was done between the master and the debtor was including interest. And according to Jewish law, it was illegal to charge interest between a fellow, a fellow Jewish person. And so maybe the manager was just adjusting this to make it fit the law. Maybe that's the adjustment that was taking place. It's also possible that the prices had been inflated because, and then the manager was changing it to reflect what the real price was. Because sometimes people who wanted to abide by the law of not charging interest would simply just kind of inflate the price and have like a, like a flat fee deal that, that wasn't interest. It included what the interest would be if we charge interest, but we don't charge interest, so it's just an inflated price. And so maybe he was adjusting the price back down. Or it's also thought that maybe he was removing his commission, which really wouldn't affect the master at all. He would still get uh, the money that was owed him, but the manager was removing his commission today to gain favor for tomorrow. Regardless of which of those three or combination thereof was actually taking place, here's what we need to know. Technically, he did nothing illegal. He did nothing that was outside of his authority. He was still the manager of the master's goods at this point. And he was able to use it to provide for his future. But still. What in the world is Jesus suggesting is commendable about such a dubious act? Well, since the key phrase that we're looking at today and we see in this particular verse is that he acted shrewdly, let's have a careful look at that word. 
You see, to do some brief kind of geeky Greek here, the word shrewdly can better be understood as to act decisively with foresight. And we see this illustrated in another parable Jesus told in, in, in Matthew 7 when Jesus talks about the wise man who built his house upon the rock in anticipation of the coming storms. See, this dishonest manager acted decisively in the present with an eye on the future. Now, he's no hero. (laughs) He's not a hero in the story by any means. But he does demonstrate the quality of discipleship that Jesus is saying his disciples require to live effectively in the world. Now, thankfully, that may not solve all of our questions on this. But thankfully, this is just a jumping off point. Because as the story ends, Jesus very quickly, even within the same verse, Jesus very quickly begins to elaborate on this quality. You see, in verse 8, we're still in in verse 8 here, he begins to help us see the importance of the rhythm of balance on how we live this out. So verse 8, the master commanded the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Then Jesus continues, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The people of this world are all in on planning and succeeding to fulfill their physical well-being. That's not really a big news update. We kind of know that. The people of this world are all in on planning and succeeding to fulfill personal, physical needs within this world around us. If you ask a person who is very secular and who, who is driving towards the things and the prize of this world, what is your goal? What is your purpose in life? They will probably give you some version of the American dream. I want the freedom and the opportunity for prosperity and success in my life and in the life of my family. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but that is the primary driving force. There's nothing wrong with having nice things and want to be successful in this world, but the person of this world is primarily, specifically, uniquely driven towards that purpose. But the people of light, as Jesus talks in verse 8, people of light, the followers of Jesus Christ, comparatively show very little concern for their spiritual well-being. He's saying here that that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're talking about those who have believed in the truth of who Jesus is and the difference that Jesus makes in a person's life. We're talking about people who have received the light of Christ into their lives and have a responsibility to go share that light with others in the world. We're talking about those who have an inheritance and a destiny waiting for them in eternity with their Heavenly Father. We're talking about those people, those people of the light. And Jesus is saying here, due to a lack of effort or a lack of concern for the things of God, they are failing to advance God's interests in the world. Ouch. Did Jesus just go there? He did. And this is where the rhythm of balance comes in. Because quite often the way that we respond to challenges like this is one of two things. Uh, sometimes people get reactionary, and they're like, fine, then I'm going to sell everything, and, and I'm going I'm to give my whole life to, to serving people, and I'm going to be like the, the next Mother Teresa. But then you have people who are reactionary on, on the other side who, who say, well, that's too hard. I'm out. I'm just out then. I might carry a concern for the things of God in my heart, but I'm just going to live as the world does. And we have these, these two extremes, these two ditches in which some people get stuck in, when they look at these concepts. But, but here's the thing. Do we tend to walk in the ditches 
Do we tend to drive in the ditches? So why would we live there? What if we could find balance between these things? You see, a shrewd steward of God's given blessings requires this rhythm of balance. Where we shrewdly use what we have to meet the needs of today with an eye on eternal investment. Does that make sense? We shrewdly use the things that we've been blessed with today with an eye on eternal investment. Now Jesus continues to develop this point when he says this about a shrewd disciple. Is that they will use worldly wealth, they will use present wealth to achieve eternal goals. And and what he says here is very practical. And and this goes on to verse, uh, verse 9 that he's speaking of here. And it's very practical in the sense of saying use the worldly, the wealth of the world that each of us have access to and each of us have to gain friends. Now, when he says about being gained friends, it's not like, look how popular I am. Look at all my friends. That's, that's not the idea here. He's talking about meeting the needs of others. So about meeting the needs of others. And obviously, if we meet the needs of others, we can gain a friendly relationship with them. So using the wealth of the world to gain friends, to meet the needs of others. Because when the resources are gone, And we all know this to be true. You can't take it with you. But those who we've served, those who have been impacted for the purpose of the kingdom of God, will welcome us into eternity, Jesus is saying. You see, stewardship of what we have is not an end in and of itself. I've I've received many blessings, therefore I've arrived. It's not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. It's a means by which we allow others in this world who have needs. It's a means by which we allow others to see and to experience acts of care from those who say God cares. Matthew 5:16 says, "Let your light, remember we are we are people of light. Let your light shine before others. Why? Because then they may see your good deeds and what's the result of them seeing your good deeds? What's the result of them experiencing this? They glorify the Father in heaven." And some of you may remember a song from back in the, the 80s. It was, it was classic 80s, kind of cheesy song but by a guy named Ray Boltz, a song called Thank You. Anyone remember that song? A couple, thank you, thank you. I'm not the only one who listened to that in, back in the 80s. Yeah. Anyways, if you're not familiar with the song, or perhaps if you are, it, the nature of the song is this. It's about a man who has a dream. And in this dream, he wakes up and he's walking the streets of gold in heaven. And he's, he's hearing angels singing. And then he hears his name. And he turns around to see who's calling his name. And he doesn't recognize this young man who is running up to him, calling out his name. And, and he says to him, he says, you don't, you don't know who I am, but, but you were my Sunday school teacher. And at the end of every class, you would pray with us. And you would ask us to invite Jesus into our heart. And, and one of those days, I did. And that's why I'm here. Thank you for serving the Lord. And then another man comes running up to him and says, says thank you. you. There was this one time a missionary came to your church and, and you didn't have a lot of money, but you, you gave what you had to fund that missionary's efforts. And because of your funding that provided that missionary to come and speak the gospel to me, I'm here. Thank you. And then one by one, people come up and say, thank you for giving. Thank you for serving. Thank you for sharing. Until finally Jesus takes his hand and says, look around you. For great is your reward. See, this is the purpose and the motivation behind why we do certain things. It's, it's why we do Angel Tree every Christmas. To share with the children of those who have parents who are incarcerated, to stand in the gap between them and say, somebody cares and loves you, and so does God. 
It's the reason we have a benevolent fund. It's the reason that we do the food bank every week. It's this one way that we can say we care for you and so does our God. And as they experience Jesus through us, they can then turn and glorify God and experience new life in him now and for all of eternity. See, we have present worldly needs and God knows about those things. But God provides for those things as well in the daily bread that he gives us. He provides for those things. But he gives us opportunities on how we can be shrewd and how we steward what we have to share with others as well. Now, here's the question I have for you. As people of light, how can we find balance with our current needs while shrewdly using the eternal, what we've been given for eternal gain for the kingdom of God? And I want you to ask yourself that question as, as I ask myself that question. You know, Jesus' next words in this provide me with the sense of perspective, actually, that helps me to find that rhythm of balance. Because next, as he continues in this passage, he reminds us that shrewd stewards see their present wealth as a responsibility, not as a reward. We see that in verse 10 through 12. Where it says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, well, then who in their right mind would ever trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, well, then who will give you property of your own? Now, this passage is fairly straightforward, but it's foundational to understand the principles of stewardship. And, and there's three of them. The first principle is this. God owns it. God owns it all. The language within this passage is it has been given. It has been entrusted. There's no sense of that you earned it, that you deserve it, that you possess it. It's this idea that it has been given as an entrustment to you. Which leads us to the second principle. The first principle is that God owns it. The second principle is that we are therefore stewards of what we've been blessed with. We don't own it. Therefore, it's not to be used to achieve our own goals. It's to be used to achieve the goals of the owner, who is God. Which leads to the third principle, that he watches how we use what he gives us. And then he responds accordingly. Three principles of stewardship. God owns it. We are stewards of it. He watches how we use it and responds accordingly. This comes up various times throughout the Bible. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove themselves faithful. What does this mean? It means that if we strictly use our present possessions as if they belong to us, we are no better than the dishonest manager and what he was being called to task for initially. But if we are shrewd in finding balance on how we use these things, as we, we see them as provisions, as daily breads to meet the needs in our lives and the lives of those around us, but do so with an eye upon the future of the master's purposes and goals, we then can be proven faithful. You see, earthly riches is the primary pursuit of the people of the world. But from a heavenly perspective, earthly riches, their true value, is really just a small thing. Really, these, these little things, these worldly riches, is like the life of school where we learn how to use them. It, it trains us how to handle true value, true riches, the affairs of the kingdom of God that he entrusts to those who prove themselves faithful. Uh, Hudson Taylor, one of his famous quotes, he said this. He said, a little thing is a little thing. 
But faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. Do you like that? A little thing is a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. When I heard that quote, I, it reminded me of another story that I had heard from, it goes back in time, back about the 1900s. Um, a story about a lady named Martha Berry who founded a school for needy children. And in this time, she needed some funding, so she wrote a letter to Henry Ford, the owner of the Ford Motor Company. And she asked him for a million dollars. Hey, shoot for the moon, right? She asked him for a million dollars to assist the school. And he sent her some money. He sent her a dime. <laughs> sent her a dime, which she graciously accepted. And she used that dime to go buy some peanuts. And she planted the, planted the peanuts in a field, and when they grew up, they harvested them, and they planted those peanuts again. And they repeated this a couple of times until they had larger fields and larger crops. Eventually, they sold the crops to buy a piano for the music students. And at this time of success, she then wrote a letter back to Ford explaining to him how she had truly been faithful with the little bit that she had been given from him. And she had done so with an eye for the future. And Henry Ford then sent her a check for a million dollars. <laughs> and today, the school that she started over more than a century ago is known as Berry College in Georgia, where they educate thousands of young people and still to this day educate them how to hold, uphold Christian values. You see, something that God gives us can be something very, very small, like a dime or a peanut but maybe it's a test and see how we handle it. It's a test to see how do we take this little thing that God has placed into our care and as a shrewd disciple of Jesus Christ with an eye upon future eternal investment, how can we use it? How can we represent God in the world around us on how we use that small thing? How can we invest it in light of the eternal consequences that are possible from it? What little thing has God placed into your care that if you're faithful with it, could become a great thing. You know, throughout this parable and, and throughout the teachings that we see in this particular passage, we keep coming across this, this phrase worldly wealth and, and, and money. And, and quite honestly, I, it's kind of a weak meaning to, to what we're talking about here. Because while that's the language that shows up here, you know, we see these different, different areas where it gets applied. We talk about serving at a food bank. We, we talk about using the facility to minister to the needs of the community through the food bank. We, uh, we talk about a peanut being planted, a, a dime being used. These, all these different ways that this is being used. And, and it kind of seems to transcend this idea of worldly wealth, of money. And, and, and that's actually the case. Because a few versions will not use the word worldly wealth in this passage. What they'll use instead is the phrase mammon of unrighteousness. They can see why they use worldly wealth. It's much less confusing. But they use this phrase mammon of unrighteousness, which is actually a stronger meaning of what we're talking about here. Because this phrase mammon and this mammon of unrighteousness carries a very significant strong meaning. And there's two aspects of it I want you to understand before we're done today is that number one, this not only speaks to money. This not only speaks to possessions that we have. It also speaks to abilities, to talent, to time, because all of those things are God-given to us as well. Do we have treasures in our lives relative to other places in the world? Absolutely, we do. But just because you might be considering yourself poor, it doesn't mean you're off the hook on this principle. We still all have time that we can use to serve. We still all have talents we can use to help others. 
And these are all things that can be managed to meet the needs of others according to kingdom purposes. That's the first thing I want you to understand about mammon is it's not just about money. It's about anything that God has placed into your care that you can be a steward of. But here's the second principle. Is that mammon has enormous power. If not steward properly. If not placed under the authority of Christ properly. Mammon has enormous power that left unchecked can take the place of God in our lives. And that's the caution we find in verse 13. When Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. No one can serve both God and money, or rather, no one can serve both God and mammon. When we view the earthly wealth that we have as a gift from God, and we seek to use it for his purposes, we then become stewards of that mammon, rather than becoming servants of the mammon. There's a very big difference between those two things. When we become shrewd stewards of what we've been given, we become stewards of it rather than servants to it. And we can do that by finding the rhythm of balance on how we meet the needs that we currently experience with an eye on eternity. And to pull this all together for us, a few of the points that occurred today, pull it all together for us, I want to share with you one more story. that I think we'll tie up some loose ends if there are any for some people. And it's a story about a man who was shipwrecked on an island. And to his surprise, he found out that he actually wasn't alone. And he found that there's actually a rather large tribe who lived on this island. And, and he was a little scared at first, not sure how they would relate. But very, very quickly, they actually started treating him very, very well. <laughs> they treated him like a king. They placed him on a throne and they, they catered to every need that he had. And he was absolutely delighted and a little perplexed, but delighted. As the time went on and his ability to communicate with these people gradually increased, he learned that this is actually part of their customs that they had. And that what they would do is they would choose one king for the year. And they would tend to his every need. And at the end of the year, they would then abandon him on a desert island all by himself to live alone until the day that he died. Well, his perplexity turned to distress when he knew that this was the fate that he was heading toward. And so over the next few months, what he decided to do is he, he sent members to the island that he was going to be exiled to to clear the land, to, to till the soil, to plant crops. He sent people there ahead to build a house and to furnish it for him. He sent friends to go and live on the island ahead of him. And when the day of his exile came, he arrived at a place that had already been carefully prepared for him with friends there ready to welcome him. You see, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are not headed to any desert island, but we are heading to our Father's home. And our preparations that we make now, with the blessings that he gives us now, will determine what our welcome is like when we arrive. The fool, the people of this world will pursue and they will serve mammon. And when their day of reckoning comes, they will leave it all behind. But the people of light, the shrewd follower of Jesus Christ, will find themselves in eternity with friends and rewards to greet them. I share this with you today, not, not because I want anything from you. There's no ask that shows up at this point in the service. I don't want anything from you, per se. But I want something for you. You know what I want for you? I want you to understand this rhythm of balance in your life. Between meeting the needs of today with an eye upon eternity, what I want for you is I want you to know that God cares enough that he has blessed you. 
that he has blessed you. He has blessed you with the presence and the reality of his son, Jesus Christ, who can free you from all captivity to sin, all bondage to any form of mammon or, or, or pride or injustice that exist. That he has provided for you through Jesus Christ, and he provides for us for our daily bread. I want you to know that. I also want for you to find the fulfillment that comes from using our God-given resources in service of others in the name of Jesus Christ. I want you to experience the contentment that comes from being confident that God is being honored with your life and what he has blessed you with. I want you to find the excitement that comes from anticipating the treasures that are being stored up in heaven from you. And I want you to experience the rewards when God sees that you are faithful with a little and he entrusts you with true kingdom riches. And I want you to know the joy of one day standing before Jesus and hearing him say the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things, that you love us, that you know us, enough to bless us through your Son, through the presence of your Spirit, for meeting the needs that we have emotionally and physically and practically in the world around us. But God, I pray that we would never for one moment lose sight of the fact that we do not deserve this. That we have not earned this. That you have given these things to us to meet the needs of ourselves, our families, and those around us with an eye upon the future. They would all go to the service of you, Jesus, our King. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us in this fashion. May we return to you an act of worship by using it to glorify and honor you in all that we are and all that we do. Lord, may you be known. May you be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name.